Hello, my name is Michelle Yana-Chan, the wandering book collector, and this is my podcast, Conversations with Writers, exploring what's informed their books and their lives around themes of movement, memory, sense of place, borders, identity, belonging, and home. I'm joined by Carla Power, whose latest book is Home, Land, Security. I slightly feel like I'm reading out an old fashioned telegram, but the commas are important. Home, land, security. Not, I hasten to add, homeland security. The US Federal Executive Department responsible for public security. If you look at that government website, its mission is to secure the nation from the many threats we face. The play on words is not accidental though. The strapline to Carla's book, de-radicalization and the journey back from extremism. Carla meets former militants, families of militants, dead and alive, and the people working to bring militants back into society, not overlooking grappling with what exactly society is. The book goes deep and broad and is brilliant. It follows her debut, If the Oceans Were Ink, a finalist for the National Book Award and Pulitzer Prize. Carla, welcome. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Carla, with both your books, I came away and thought, she's brave. You address topics that are taboo, complex, controversial, daunting, and arcane. And you come from news journalism and could have written about anything because at news magazines like Time and Newsweek, where you've worked, that's the skill set, right? You can write about anything. But you chose in your latest book, De-Radicalization, and in your first book, Reading the Quran with a Conservative Muslim Cleric in Coffee Shops in Oxford. How you sold that one, I have no idea. But let me start by asking you, Carla, what drives you to take on projects like these? Um, I, th- I think, you know, I, I almost feel a responsibility. We are so blessed I think we are are, you know we're paid to travel and write and I think to try to grapple with some of the biggest things that seem to be going on in the headlines but to to have the time to dive deep and make them much more complex is a huge luxury and I don't want to squander it. Well, you grew up in the U.S. and your family was based in suburban St. Louis, Missouri. But you also spend some of your childhood in Kabul, in Delhi, in Tehran and in Cairo, towed around the world, as you put it, by a restless father with a passion for Muslim cultures. You write that you as a child discovered home was less a single place than wherever we happen to be. Was that confusing or was that elucidating it was it was both the thing that really anchored me as we were dragged around the world um were were books i i used them to steady me and you can you could find me in endless snapshots with me in a backdrop of the karakoram highway or Turkey or Italy, standing there, my head tilted to the side with my thumb in the spine of a book because I'd been no doubt reading and my mother had pulled me away to uh, take a family snapshot. I found books were really 
really important in that they they created a context for me in times when it it could be quite frightening just you know to be dragged along the hippie trail in the early 70s could be intensely overwhelming and so i found myself doing things like reading you know the the famous five or or another Eden Blyton and that felt steadying taking on projects like the ones you have in these last two books it's also because your travels as a child have have informed you as a woman today absolutely i mean i i i think i got i got the taste for going a little bit further for for wanting wanting to to plunge out into cities that i i got very used to in a in a weird way as a kid wandering around strange cities and learning to love it increasingly at first it was quite daunting but then i found it was actually a, a comfort thing and so the idea of going a little bit further into the kabul bazaar with my father when we were living in kabul or going a, a little into you know a stranger um more distant cartier of the souk in marrakech or something it made me feel increasingly alive and i think writing about cultures that have been framed as quote unquote the unknown or the exotic and reaching out and trying to make sure that they were they were not trying to trying to break them down understand them link my own experiences to those that might be conceived of as different or foreign is incredibly reassuring to me because that is that was the rhythm of my childhood in many ways i mean that's the power of travel those stints in in afghanistan and in india and so on have they had for the time you spent there a, a disproportionate impact on who you are and what you do for a living absolutely i mean childhood memories that are breaks from the norm you know we would live this suburban st louis existence and going to a to a nice all white school and you know um my parents teaching at universities and so on was then punctured every couple of years by a spectacular out of place out of time experience and because of that i i have freakishly good memories um and and sharp vivid memories of those times because they were they they broke with the ordinary and one of the things i mourn with my own kids who have who have grown up in one country england is that the time can seem their their childhoods can seem much more homogenous to them and there's no punctuation in terms of you know the year the year we spent you know here or there and that kind of sharpness and vividness i think is a really good training for for a writer and and a traveler you write so evocatively about the house you grew up in in st louis too um an aladdin's cave with lamps from cairo indian brocade bukhara samovars when you travel back to st louis does that feel like home everything feels at an angle of 20% to me and in the world and that that is something i treasure i you know i remember coming back to st louis after you know a year you know a year and a half in afghanistan and a year in egypt and having to be schooled 
sort of a, as to how to be an adolescent there. You know, people were that, you know, these are the right shirts to wear. This is the, you know, my mother had to sort of almost engineer an adolescence for me in Afghanistan as well. Sort of like, here is an album of the Beatles, you know, and she would try to recreate the, the notion of what, what an American adolescence was. So I, I think there was, even, even as we were exploring and trying to sink into Afghan culture. So I think that that sort of distance um, and that sort of feeling, not particularly at home, feeling at home, not feeling at home is um, something I'm used to and something that, that helps. Um, I think one of the, the tricky things about the last two years and not being able to travel is, is that I, I just find my my observations and my sense of writerly excitement has really been dulled by familiarity. And when you travel nowadays and you go to these countries where you really you gave so much and took so much, does it merely just feel familiar, or is there also a sense of kind of coming home? I think it would be presumptuous for me to say coming home, especially in places in Asia, say, where the ch the change and the flux has been so great and is continually great. I think nostalgia can be a really tricky thing. I mean, yes, of course, I do things like rush back to the bookshops in Delhi where I would stand up and read The Famous Five or rush back in, in Kabul to try to find my old house and... Uh, but but I do think um, that way lies a kind of spooky, almost Raj nostalgia kind of thing going on. I mean, I was a kid there. Um, I was a kid in these places. And if you're a decent journalist, you you look clear eyed at at the changes in the flux um, as opposed to try to trying to go back and recreate anything, anything that you experienced beforehand. I mean, you do that so well, Carla, in the book. I, I salute the way you constantly check and balance yourself in both books, trying to rid yourself you know, of the optics that are yours. They're undeniably yours, yet you fight it. You fight your biases. You fight, fight your vantage point nobly and tirelessly. I want to know how you ace that. Like, Where do you do your best you know, deep thinking? I think in Homeland Security, it was it was really through the help of um, my editor, Chris Jackson, who at first the idea was I was gonna talk to the mothers of militants who had gone over to ISIS. And you know, I would tell stories about, about mothers and I was a mother myself, so we would make connections and so on. I, I, I started off with the mothers because I assumed I wasn't gonna be able to talk to militants themselves. And then I started going to places like Indonesia and Pakistan, where this whole like securitized idea of, oh, you can talk to these, you know, shamed mothers of, of ISIS militants, maybe if you really work hard. And, and you go to Indonesia or Pakistan, they're like, oh, do you wanna like come to our militant conference? And we you can meet four generations of jihadis and talk to them. So there was a, there's a constant sense of my own perceptions as I went through the world of like, wait a minute, you know, these men that, and I use the term advisedly, these people that I had assumed were kind of beyond the pale 
are now sitting across from, you know, at a, at a cafe and talking to me uh, about, you know, what, what made them pick up a gun and, and go fight jihad. And I think that experience, just, just keeping moving and asking the hard questions about what your own preconceptions are, are really important. And then when Chris, um, my editor, came onto the project, he had a very heightened awareness of me as a white woman moving through the world. And he was Ta-Nehisi Coates' editor. He's edited a lot of really um, groundbreaking works on race in the United States. And he comes from a very American perspective. But he would force me to say, look, you know, you're a privileged white woman. What? Let, go deeper. What does it mean that you have the privilege to interview, you know, an, an, an ISIS militant? By keeping moving and getting the right editor um, and being rigorous with oneself and sort of clear-eyed about oneself, I think that they work well. They work well. Top tips, Carla. Um <laughs> So as you said, in the book, you, you do cite these individual cases of, of the radicalized, of the de-radicalized, and you look at the notions of home for them, the dream of an imagined home, and also the prospect of returning home. And although you write that you, you began to feel through the research and reporting that there were nearly as many reasons people were drawn to jihad as there were jihadis, home loomed large. Absolutely. I think um, I think there there were for for Europeans who went to join often home felt slightly disjunctive for second and third generation folks whose parents might have come to France or Belgium from Morocco or Algeria. Their relationship to home had always been slightly off kilter in the sense of, you know, they'd send out a thousand applications and because their last name happened to be quote unquote foreign, uh, they couldn't get jobs. And they also have the notion of an imagined home. That's something the Islamic State capitalized on. You know, you aren't welcomed back, back in the West, come to the caliphate. Here is where we're all gonna recreate the Ummah, this golden age, much like, much supposedly, much like when the prophet was in Medina, and we will all work to create this home together. And it's tremendously seductive, not only to people who, you know, may have felt discriminated against, but also to people who were having just very mundane problems. Uh, a girlfriend breaks up with you, or you want better health care, or you're a little bit bored. I met what one of the families I met was from Indonesia, where they were very wealthy, you know, very, very settled middle class types. And uh, their 16 year old daughter convinced, along with her uncle, convinced 28 members of an extended family, all, you know, doing fine in Indonesia. None of this like mad religious ideology, none of this, oh, I can't make it in my homeland, quite the opposite. But they all began to convince themselves of things that were wrong with their home that would be better in the Islamic State. So things ranging from this Afifa telling her sister, oh, we can get medical degrees for free there. Or my dad will have a better work-life balance. He'll be able to, to relax and not work so hard as he does here in Indonesia. And 
the the utopia that a lot of these groups push, whether it's you know an Aryan nationhood or an Islamic state, is is often predicated on people who are are dissatisfied with home and who who want to want to create new homes that are somehow fresh starts. Well, there's that migration, but of course, there's a more general mass migration going on too. I wonder in this in this huge movement of people, albeit stalled for a couple of years, but nevertheless ongoing, is that making it easier or harder to for us all to live together? Um, I think. I think it's inevitable. And I also think it's important for us to think that there have always been migrations, that while populists and xenophobes might try to play up the notion that, that these migrations are new, and, and I'm, I, I agree, that, you know, since the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and, and Syria, there have been more movement, you know, there's been more movement since World War II uh, and so on. But People have always moved. This is the nature of civilizations, you know? And and I think, is it easier or is it less easy? Um, I think it depends on who, who and where you're talking to. I think one of the things that's going on, certainly in the Anglo-American world, is that there are increasingly two different reactions. One is, fabulous, let's expand, let's get our, you know, what, what the economy needs is migrants, what, what our... What our culture needs is vibrance. This is the way multiculturalism is, is, is the way that societies thrive. And people who may have been losers in globalization, um, people who may have not benefited from open borders, open markets, or, or feel that they haven't, are being manipulated into thinking that, that the people that they blame for this are, are newcomers and migrants. Um, I think there are a lot of um, there are a lot of politicians out there who you know from Trump onwards who are making hay by saying the people you blame are are the last people off the boat. So I think it depends on who you talk to. What I love about both your books, Carla, is the is one aspect is this unexpected ways you pepper your chapters with quotes from literature and sometimes flicking it, sculptures. They make for surprisingly good segues and you do, because you do it so well. There's Walt Whitman's quote, do I contradict myself? Very well then, I contradict myself. I am large, I contain multitudes. And then Rudyard Kipling, what should they know of England who only England know? And then Einstein on quantum entanglement when you compare the similar appeals of the far right and jihadist extremists. And then there's one that I wanted to raise on a story of Alexander the Great finding some battle-scarred Greeks in Persia who don't want to go home because they've been maimed by war and fear rejection by their fellow countrymen. They just want a refuge where they're safe. So to talk about now coming home, you write, homecomings don't test the metal only of the person who returns. They test the character of home, too. What do you mean by that? It's as old as Homer. Think about Odysseus coming home and 
nobody recognizes him until his dog recognizes him by a scar on his thigh. And, you know, the big question at the end is, will, will Penelope, you know, welcome him back? Will this, can, can he come home? And in a weird way, I feel like the Odyssey ends at the wrong point. I mean, he does go home, but, um, but absolutely the test to our societies often are whether or not people who go abroad who are changed can then come back and integrate into society or can can be used can will the new things that they discover overseas be be integrated and also what i'm also very interested in what happens to the people left behind by the journey what happens to home when 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 so many people go away i mean i think of and this is this is so crucial to your question of of migration like you know all the all the people in Kerala, all the wives in Kerala or in um, southern India whose husbands have gone off to work in the Gulf. And there are anthropologists doing looking into this. And, you know, apparently women are, are getting increasingly empowered because these are now women headed households with with the husbands off in the Gulf. And, you know, you I you, you just wonder what migration is is doing to gender structures to family structures um what happens i mean there are less positive responses there's a terrific book by um arlie hothschild about what happened in places like the philippines where so many of the women go off migrate to work as nurses or housekeepers or um in in the gulf or in europe and how grandparents had to take care of kids and kids grew up without knowing their own mothers. And then the mothers come back and, and the children don't really know them. So I think in some ways, how home responds to migration is one of the great stories of our time. We're, we're all interested in the stories of migrants, but the people who get left behind, the Penelope's of the world who have to fend off suitors and 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 keep the home fires burning, they're doing a lot of growing and changing too. And, and that deserves, I think, close, that, that's a really interesting topic to look at. Well, you're the Odysseus, leaving the Penelope behind, I feel, because your research for this book took you from Aarhus in Denmark, to the Swat Valley, to Berlin, to Jakarta, to Mechelen in Belgium in a chapter which you called How to De-Radicalize Your Town. I really like the name of that chapter. I want to ask you, on those journeys, if you ever felt compelled to move to one of those places because you were so struck by their commitment to de-radicalization and therefore their redefining of society and their sense of shared collective civic responsibility. That's a great question. Yeah, I mean, uh, I I was dazzled by a number of places and the, and 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 the kind of strands of humanity and and shapes of humanity that people were allowed were were summoning. But Mechelen, Mechelen really struck me. I don't think I'd ever. I I don't. It's too tidy for me. But um, who likes a bit of mess? But Mechelen seems to me an extraordinary experiment in hyper hyper diversity and and in living because what it's it's this tiny chocolate box town 
where, um, you know, it looks like, you know, Disney's Sleeping Beauty should waltz out of the town hall because it's absolutely beautiful. It's like it's like ye olde Europe that that ironically um, the far right is trying to, to protect. Um, and and at the turn of in 2000, it was a, a very different place. It was it was known as sort of the high crime, high dirt, low employment um, city in Belgium or in Flanders rather. And um, there were a third of the town voted for far right extreme, a far right extreme group. Um, and there were, you know, tales of Moroccan pickpockets and so on. So there was, there was a very, very polarized population. And this amazing mayor was elected and he was like, yeah, my family have been here for 17 generations, but my generation is the first to live in a hyper-diverse town because there were 160 different nationalities there. And he was like, look, it is not just the job of the migrants to learn to live with us. That's the, that's what most people say. You know, it's like, it's the job of the migrants. It's kind of like scrubbing toilets or sweeping streets. They have to integrate. He's like, no, we all have to integrate with this new reality, this new, exciting, hyper-diverse, globalized chocolate box town. And he put in all these extraordinary principles. And part of the reason I think he could do it was he had Nazis in his family and he recognized the possibilities for extremism and violent extremism lurking in all of us. And so he was like, unless we really, really work in a muscular way to counter these polarizing tendencies, we, we won't make it. And, and he turned the town around. So Mechelen, if, if I were a quieter sort, Mechelen would be where I wanted to live. But too tidy for you too. A little bit. The streets are as clean as dinner plates i kid you not it's 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 really extraordinary but but um, you, you yeah. live in a you know a pretty tidy place don't you on the south coast of england i bet um you probably never thought you would end up spending a chunk of your life on the south coast of england but yeah and you call yourself i know a secular cosmopolitan with roots everywhere and nowhere and i wonder if if a sense of belonging matters and if you have one, where do you get it from? I, 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 I'm very happy not to belong. I actually realize that I get very uncomfortable when I belong, um, that that makes me kind of jumpy. I mean, I have, I have friends and associates that, that I, I like being able to speak shorthand to, but I feel most alive when I'm slightly out of place. And I get really nervous when I have to stay in a place really for a long time uh so these the pandemic has been really hard on me so um because i'm expected to act like everyone else and and there's there's such um this was something that my my dad never fit in in the united states i mean he was um he he was an eccentric and one of the things that travel and particularly travel in Muslim societies gave him was a free pass. People didn't think he was 
just weird. People just thought he was, you know, a, a traveler and travelers get carte blanche. And I think in some ways that that relationship traveling through shows humanity at at its best. It's it's curious. It's open. It may be transient, but it's trying to seize the moment. And uh, that that's why that's why I want to keep doing it mentally at least so are you, are you going to cut loose at some point and and up sticks and go like your parents did wandering book collectors themselves absolutely yes yes when circumstances allow absolutely um i'd like to i'm writing a book now about um amina wadud who is this amazing fierce wonderful radical feminist is islamic feminist theologian and you know who was born um to a black methodist preacher in in silver springs maryland but has since sort of circumnavigated the road the, the world many many times and is now living in in yoyakarta and has visited 60 countries and has drawn strength from all over the world and uh when i first met her one of the reasons I knew I wanted to write her biography was because she said, I make my way from the outside. And I was like, yeah, that sounds about right. So in, in the reporting of that book, Carla, where are you going to be traveling? Where, where will we see you? Uh, she, she was a rambler um, across the United States. She hitchhiked during the 70s, so uh, out to California. So both coasts there and then and then to South Africa, where she hung out with uh, a lot of Muslims who had uh, been involved in the anti-apartheid movement. And because of the anti-apartheid movement, then sort of started thinking about gender roles in Islam. And that's that sort of inspired her. So then I'll go to Cape Town and um to to look into that and then um to indonesia and malaysia actually um where because of of the culture there there's a very porous and accepting uh islamic culture which allowed her to think in new theological ways and to to really sort of marshal the openness and and freeness of what she calls tropical islam uh, to come up with new approaches, new progressive approaches to how one reads the Quran. I hope um, I hope you'll come back on the podcast when that book is ready. I, I, I want to end um, by asking, is there a, a place on the planet? Is there a paradise that you're yearning to be? I, I mean, it breaks my heart to see what's going on politically there, but South Asia, I, I, I always joked that if I can understand India, I will understand life uh, because the extremes are so great and the diversity is so extraordinary. So one of my favorite books, as you'll probably know, is Kim um, by Richard Kipling, who is, uh, I agree, an unabashed imperialist, but also a fabulous writer and so one of those difficult people that we have to square square uh political squeamishness about with just uh, being blown away by some of the things he wrote 
and Kim, uh, who wandered up and down the Grand Trunk Road, down from Varanasi up to Kabul, or almost Kabul, uh, up to the Himalayas, actually. Um, I, I, I'd love to, to follow him <laughs> up and down the Grand Trunk Road, and that would be my paradise. I might just have to hold your hand on that trip. <laughs> Come with me. <laughs> the two of us, I'd love it. Carla Power, thank you for joining me on The Wandering Book Collector. And my thanks to the supporters of this podcast, Abercrombie & Kent, Toomey, and The Ultimate Library. Goodbye. <laughs>